and welcome to Happy Place. My name is Fern Cotton and we are back with a special series of episodes recorded in front of a live audience at the Happy Place Festival in London and Manchester. And today we get acquainted with someone called Reggie Yates. And I remember some of those conversations that we had and some of the private things that you shared with me and some of the things I shared with you for the first time. And we'd known each other for years at that point. In a weird way, we were gifted the ultimate friendship road trip around America and we happened to get paid while we were doing it. Now, I've known Reggie since I was 15, which is crazy, and we've worked together many times over the years. So this just felt like a brilliant opportunity to go back through our friendship and just to sort of see how we've grown. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And now, here's Reggie. treat this is a treat i am um, okay what's in the gold flask that this is my nerdy flask that i carry around to stop single-use plastic and it's got 1.1 liters of gin water and um i just try and keep hydrated you know yeah, what i'm saying the point one is very important mm, the, the 1.1 liter i've got 1.9 liter as well oh wow i thought it was a bit obnoxious to bring that today so i went with a smaller guy uh, i'm sure this is exactly what you've all come for the discussion of uh, the difference between yeah. a 1.1 and a 1.9er. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Reggie, this is so lovely yeah. and kind of weird. As I said, I don't think either of us have interviewed the other before. We did that weird thing, didn't we, a little while ago where we sat down and sort of didn't interview each other but had a chat. There was just 300 yeah. people there. Yeah. That was weird. But that was... I think th- this is a weird dynamic of me quizzing you more so. And... Obviously, let's look back at the history. So Reggie and I met when we were very young. I was 15, Reggie was 14. And 13. 13, soz. Am I that much older than you? Damn. Yeah, two, two school years. Uh, okay, two school years, whatever. Um, and we've had a really amazing uh, experience going through all these weird jobs together and having a lovely friendship. And we've had many times, predominantly in my kitchen, where we've discussed matters and chatted. But it's never been me really like quizzing you and getting into the nitty-gritty. So there's, there's so many things I want to ask you. I guess a good starting point is um, we both got into TV really young. You way before me. So do you want to talk about the shows you did before Disney Club? <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. So I started in TV when I was eight years old. Um, the first thing I ever did was a show called Desmond's, which was a channel for Desmond's, let's say that a bit more slowly. Desmond's, how I make a legendary show. <laughs> I wish I was a regular. It was only the two episodes I did on Desmond's, which was awesome and uh, really exciting for a kid like myself because my entire family watched it and it felt like my family was on screen, so we loved it. Um, in fact, coming to think of it, I don't really talk about the beginnings of my career very often, but the first few, ep- first few things I did are kind of cool in hindsight. 
So my second job was Fry and Laurie, uh, which was their sketch show when Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry were still a comedy duo. And then I did Between the Lines, which was a drama. And it was just lots of kids' drama, well, drama for adults and comedy. Mm, such a, an amazing start to your yeah. career. And then we met on the Disney Club, which um, was a very lovely show that was a really nice learning ground for us yeah. to kind of learn the skills of presenting because we didn't know what we were doing I mean you probably more so than me but I had no clue I was like why, are they, why am I doing this I don't know what I'm doing and it was really nice to instantly make a friend and I'm sure you've all experienced it at times where you've met a mate and you, it's just instant you just click and that's that because there were six of us in the gang but me and Reggie just clicked and we've been mates ever since yeah I, um, I think that that was sorry to cut you but I yeah. think that that was because we shared a lot of the same values I think um, we are both from quite strong families who have a very clear sense of what's right and what's wrong and I think for us when you're in TV and you're that young and you're seeing lots of things happen around you that make no sense to the world that you're from or more importantly you're seeing behavior that you were just not encouraged to to sort of like to to do or to to act out i think the two of us would sort of catch each other's eye at points when you saw people misbehaving or you saw a pop star acting weird it was just kind of like that doesn't make any sense and i think through that we got closer yeah it was it was um sort of normalcy that linked us like just normal we came from families where it was about family values and about morals and and that was a lovely starting point and and why I instantly thought this guy's going to be my mate was I was doing my first ever link to camera so I'd never sat in front of a camera before I'd never spoken to one it was just completely alien so I'm 15 sat there probably got bunches and definitely had bunches definitely had bunches and buffalo trainers on which are really trendy now by the way um I was so cool and I was terrified and I went to do the first line and cocked it up and I swore I won't say it now because might be children here but I did a little mild swear but I mean I was 15 you swear so I did a little swear and the director was a bit like no no you don't do that and I'm from a working class family you know we have a little bit of banter a little bit of a swear here and there whatever so I was like oh no I've ruined it on the first day and then Reggie did the next link and I swear to this day and you might say differently you did your line wrong and then did a swear to make me feel better and I was just like, this guy, he could be my mate. <laughs> I think at that time, um, I'd had a year on the show before you joined. And I remember sort of getting to the point of feeling comfortable for the first time in front of camera as a presenter because it was the second thing I'd done as a presenter. When I was, when I was 11, my first presenting job was hosting a safety and security video for London Underground. Yes! And, um, I, they, Please they, mind the gap. Yeah, exactly. When they stopped using VHSs in schools, I was so happy because there wasn't a DVD <laughs> version. Uh, but they were showing it well into my 20s. And um, uh, that was the first time I actually presented. And then uh, when I got Disney Club, uh, the, I did a year and then you joined, um, I sort of drank in some of the notes that were given to us. I refer to our producers uh, a lot whenever I talk about my time on Disney Club. So there's a lady called Maddie Darrell, who I know Amazing you have woman. an incredibly close relationship yeah. with. And there was an executive on Disney Club called Billy McQueen, who I actually call my TV dad. And Billy, uh, to this day, is still one of my friends. He's my oldest, fattest, baldest mate, but he's one of my closest friends, genuinely, and I've learned so much from him. And some of the little conversations that we had when he pulled me to one side were, were almost... Uh, they were the things that I wanted to hear from the man I didn't have at home. Yeah. 
And one of those was about being kind. And um, I just remembered what we'd created as a little group of kids on Disney Club. And then suddenly there was this new pack of kids that had seen us on screen, uh, were aware of what it was that we were doing and were being expected to just sort of fit in. And I just thought, uh, just be kind. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, you, you were, you well, were kind back, which was lovely. Well, I absolutely felt that kindness. With um, Billy, and I know there's been other people that have been integral to you uh, feeling confident and safe in your life and career, um, did you sort of notice them as father figures at that point in your life, do you think? Uh, at the time, I didn't realise. Yeah. It's only in hindsight. It's only in looking back um, and, you know, the project we've discussed uh, a thing that I, I, I want to write about it. Um, it was only off the back of talking to Billy in my late teens that I realised what I'd done quite instinctively. So um, uh, Billy and myself became incredibly close when I was leaving home at 18 and he was going through uh, a, a divorce. And we were having lots of dinners together. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if I ever told you about I this. I don't know. Okay, so um, we were going for dinner like every other night because he moved close to me in South London at the time. And um, one night he sort of kind of opened up to me about his relationship with his stepfather as a kid and they never really got on. And he told me about this idea of bits of dad, this thing where he went out there and found uh, men that were the father figure that he didn't want. And um, he was one of those men to me. And uh, I sort of, in hindsight, realised at that point that uh, what I'd done up until that moment was take the tools that were given to me by my mother to identify what is good in a man and go out of my way to find this amalgamated version of dad that was one man who could talk to me about football, one man who could talk to me about money, one man who could talk to me about women, one man who could talk to me about work, and collectively, those bits of dad made the perfect dad that I didn't have at home. And I wish I came up with bits of dad, because it was 100% Billy's idea, but it was something that I did instinctively, and he'd done too. And we were sort of bound forever in that moment. Mm. I, I just love that uh, notion and I think it's something that a lot of people in this room will have probably subconsciously also done with uh, any role they feel has been missing in their life that they've gravitated towards people that can fill that gap or can be um, a guidance really because we all need that and yeah. especially with what you were going through with being exposed to so much like we both were as kids in a you know, in an industry that was very adult and quite scary at times, I'm imagining that you really needed that to anchor you down. Absolutely. And uh, to add to that, it, it started with mum, you know, because mum gave me the tools. If I weren't able to know what a good man looked like or what uh, a healthy environment felt like, I wouldn't have been able to make those realisations, even if it was subconsciously. So, um, yeah, the, the tools that were uh, sort of instilled in me came from my mother, without a doubt. Mm. How um, did you feel being on TV that young? I think everybody reacts to that in a different way. And it's obviously, you know, it's seen as just very lucky, all amazing. And you are, because it's a job and it's something that we all have greatly enjoyed. But there are tough bits. And you are exposed to, I think the bit I've found the trickiest is uh, mass opinion from a very young age and I wonder how you think that's impacted you in your life and who you are today well to, to, to show you some love and to give you some credit for a second I never fully appreciated how different it is and has always been and will continue to be for women uh, to what it is for, for men particularly when we were in our formative years because the way that you know the women that I was working with be it Holly or yourself or Emma or whoever 
in the earlier stages of my career, this is all years and years ago when we're all still on kids' TV or doing MTV stuff or whatever, um, you guys would be judged for your haircut. You'd have a, a man executive, a male executive, tell you how to dress. Or, or even in, in the worst instances I've seen, you'd have somebody who's old enough to know better, somebody who has children, telling you to show more leg or more breast. And as someone who has four sisters, that always was an issue for me to be around that and see that. But at that point in my journey, there wasn't enough confidence to challenge those authority figures in the moment. Now, that ain't happening around me, that's for damn sure. But at that time, again, that was all part of my journey and part of my growth. Um, whereas now, um, I think looking back on who I was when, when sort of TV was a thing and dealing with these ideas of fame, I realised I was very fortunate because two things. Um, so where I grew up and how I grew up, you weren't allowed to be special. So uh, working class family, tiny violin, council estate, North London, um, everybody's broke, nobody's got anything, and everybody's like scrimping to, to get by. And to be Mr. Flashy Man, Mr. Show Off Man, there's no room for that. So at home, I wasn't allowed to do that. Culturally, uh, with my parents, my mother and my father, both being born in Ghana and West Africa, coming to the country as immigrants, not having very much, um, I wasn't allowed to be bigger than a child was supposed to be in our culture. Therefore, it was, oh, my God, today was amazing, Mum. I interviewed the Spice Girls. It was great. Lovely. Now, go and do the washing up. And it was sort of, it was, it was normalised and I was humanised regularly to keep my sort of ego in check, but also to keep me within the culture that I was from, that I am from, where there is a hierarchy for your elders. Mm. So at home, I had that. Now, outside of that, I actually got into TV, not through some shiny drama school or through some program or mentorship. Um, I went to, I don't know if there's anyone from North London here, but, um, woo, woo, all right. <laughs> Just the four of us. I'm originally from North London. I moved to South London in my teens, but um, uh, in a borough of Islet and where I'm from, it's an amazing borough for so many reasons, but one of them is that it's indicative of what makes London unique, and that is million pound house, million pound house, council estate, mm. million pound house. Million, that's, and that's London all over, but in some pockets more than others, right? Certainly not the case in Chiswick. But anyway, <laughs> in Holloway, where I'm from, there's a lot of that. So um, when I would walk to school, you would sort of be going past these beautiful homes with three cars on the drive. And, you know, you'd be walking on your own because mum and dad had to go to work. Um, but I went to a lo local drama club called Anashir Theatre. And Anashir's was £2.50 a lesson. And for us working class kids, it was a place to go to express yourself to be the person that you've always wanted to be, to improvise and to be your best self. And for the middle-class kids in the area who could have gone anywhere, it was an amazing opportunity to meet kids that they didn't know or that they would never know and that lived in their area. So that was a social and, uh, and, and performance education for me in so many ways. So I had all of these things sort of going on at the same time as well as being on screen and meeting the people whose music you played and like my sister was obsessed with like Ant and Deck and or PJ and Duncan as they PJ, were at the time. let's get ready to rumble. Exactly. And you know, I was interviewing them and it was kind of, it was surreal. So whether I liked it or not, I had all of these things going on, but I was constantly reminded of where I was from, what I wanted 
and also who I was. Mm. So I had no choice but to be my authentic self from quite a young age. And obviously, I think we all know that what is authentic to you changes with how you feel about yourself and what you know. And as I've grown, um, that idea of authenticity being at the core of me and who I am has become more important and also more refined. And we've all watched that happen which has been an exceptional process as a friend to see and to everybody that has followed your career from day dot to watch where you are at now and we're going to get onto that in depth in a moment but first I am quite desperate to use my clicker and for (laughs) for people using uh, listening to the podcast right now who can't see these pictures we're going to be very descriptive and also we're going to make a montage that we plastered across Instagram for all to see so don't feel left out. It's all going to be fine. So the first picture is going to be this, which is from Only in America. Jesus. So this was in Seattle, and this was a really lovely experience for Reggie and I because we had an idea when we were in our early 20s. We were both obsessed with American culture. Again, I guess another sort of working-class dream. One day we'll go to America, and it will be amazing. That sort of changed a little bit in more recent years, I guess. But, um, but, but we certainly had that feeling and we were obsessed with what American culture meant. And we went to the BBC and said, can we do a road trip around America? And they said, yes. I mean, commissioning's got like way stricter oh, yeah. in more recent years, but they let us do it. And we had this amazing experience, about six months of on-off, going around some really weird and wonderful parts of the United States and, and doing stuff like that. Well, each episode was themed, wasn't it? Mm. So I think that episode there with me with the stupid cape on and the silly sort of stupid face, really, uh, (laughs) is the superhero episode. And the one next to it is the alien episode where we went to Area 51. Which I'll just click to now. Oh, nice. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. There we are. This was in a town Uh, called Rachel, by the way. It's a town called Rachel off of the extraterrestrial highway. Yes, and there's about 80 people that live there, and they all say the same thing, that aliens have been into the cafe to order food. So we stayed there overnight, which was really relaxing. Yeah, uh, and I think we ate there. You got the jump wrong, and we ate at the Alien. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was amazing and a fantastic pun, like top points for the pun. Top points for the pun. Um, uh, more than sort of some of the things that we saw and things that we experienced on screen, I think Only in America is unique in a lot of ways because we were making a road trip show uh, for TV. We were two young people driving around America in a silly yellow Mustang, but we were two young people driving around America in a yellow Mustang. So it was being filmed and we were making a TV show, but I think our friendship, and I remember some of those conversations that we had and some of the private things that you shared with me and some of the things I shared with you for the first time, and we'd known each other for years at that point, in a weird way, we were gifted the ultimate friendship road trip around America, and we happened to get paid while we were doing it. Um, and as a result, I sort of came away from that experience knowing that I'd know you forever, because what we experienced together, personally, in terms of growth, like the boyfriend you had at the time, the things I was going through with my family, the changes that we were experiencing, we were getting, making real money for the first time. All of the things that we were going through, we were sharing in that car on our own, driving from one place to the next. And it was beautiful in a lot of ways. So when I think about Only in America, I don't just think about the TV show. I think about the road trip that we yeah. got and the friendship that we built. Really. I agree. I think there's something to be said for long car journeys. You're sort of forced to talk. 
especially if someone's driving, it's really rude if the other person's on their phone. This is before social media anyway. So we were just sat. And it, we did drives that lasted like eight hours. And we would just chat. And I think it's a really, it's a good place to have a good old, you know, it starts off a bit like, how are you? Where are you going on your holidays? All basic stuff. And then you just fall into a deep chat. And it's a really... It was a really lovely experience, and um, I'm, I, I look back at those memories and these pictures all the time, and it was it was very very special. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Um, another show that many people who have been walking around at the festival this weekend have said to me, "Oh, I can't wait to see Reggie on the talk. I used to love watching you on Smile. Oh, he was so alert and awake." So this is Reggie in the smile chair. We used to have to get up at about four in the morning to record this show. No, to do it live, to do this show. There was one time when Reggie drank a lot of Red Bull. Remember that day? I do remember it vividly. All right, so context. We're in our early 20s, right? We both moved out. I had my first house. And you know, you're young, you're going out, you're having fun. Uh, So I would be out with my friends sometimes and push it a little bit too far. And I remember one night I went out and didn't get a chance to sleep and got home in time, just about enough time for the cab, jumped in the cab and went straight to the studio. And I thought, right, fix it up, Reg, fix up. What are you going to do? And I smashed a couple of Red Bulls. And I then went on to host a live show with Fern and interviewed people. But I was speaking so You were so freaking out. You were saying to me, I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out. I don't know what's going on, I can't breathe, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out, my heart's racing, I'm freaking out. Uh, and part of the reason that that here's, was happening... Here's recess. I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. <laughs> well, I, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I've never taken a drug in my life. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't do any of that stuff. So caffeine... <laughs> is Your like, system is went, what is this? So I was asking people questions and answering them myself during the interviews. <laughs> and it, I was just an absolute mess. But it was brilliant because everybody knew that I'd just burnt the candle and was trying to get away with it. And I really didn't. We made many mistakes like that when we were on TV when we were younger. Uh, another memory from Only in America is going in the original Batmobile. And I just actually chose that picture because my outfit is so bad, can I we, don't can, have words to describe it. Can we talk about your neckerchief? Because that's Let's a, talk about it. That's Let's talk amazing. About it. That's a feat of fashion. What did I think? So what I think my thinking behind that outfit is, Avril Lavigne, but on a chic day. I've gone... I think I quite like Avril Lavigne. I'm going to try that out. I probably quite like Busted as well. And, but that neckerchief's nice. Uh, see, this is one of the beautiful things about um, us essentially growing up on screen. Uh, those awkward pictures and those awkward moments that we all have in our teens, those stupid haircuts. I had a moustache and braids for how long? <laughs> I'll never forget, right? So I had cane row and a moustache, right? Right, let me add to this. Go on. Every night before Smile, once a week. Who is it, your sister? Dev's sister. Dev's sister used to braid uh, Dev and Reggie's hair into a new pattern for the show. <laughs> it could be a spiral, could be a crosshatch. You never knew what you were going to get on a Sunday. And, 
And the day I thought, all right, it's time to cut this off now. I shaved it off and I was like, I should probably get rid of the tash too. I turned up to smile and everyone, everyone was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and you went, Reg, you look so much better. Oh, my God. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? You're such a bad friend. What the hell? Why didn't everyone. you tell me about the neckerchief? You could have said, don't wear that on the telly. Well, look, look what I'm wearing. I look like a brown clown. I look just as bad. Look at me next to you and what I'm wearing. We were just as pathetic as each other. But we didn't have the knowledge. So it's okay. we can't okay. escape these pictures. Like, they're everywhere. Yeah. They're in our lives. So we just embrace them. No, I, I do. And I make a point of putting them up on social media mm. now. Because I love looking back. Because, yes, it's memories for some of the people that follow me and some of the people that have watched us. But also... It's nice to know that we've we've left that in the past, and and well, also appreciate be yeah, of. and appreciate that stage. You know, it's a moment in, of we growth. Were, we were trying our best. God damn it! Yeah, there I am, uh, travelling around <laughs> the states with my neck pillow and Reggie taking pictures of me whilst trying to get a peaceful nap. There was very little sleep during this era of our lives, and it was a lot of going back and forwards. Yeah. We were doing Top of the Pops, I guess, at the same time. I remember I got a mini holiday in New York because you did something that made me so excited and you had to do it here in the UK. You had to leave Shooting Only in America to be one of the hosts of uh, Live 8. Yeah. And that was huge, but you were so young. I know, it's, it's very weird looking back at that. Um, How old were you at the time? It must have been like 22? 23 or something, I guess. And it was... Um, particularly scary but it was it felt quite magical because it was a big um moment i think for the uk to you know everyone sort of stopped and got involved and a huge amount of money was donated and it felt i felt very lucky to be part of that but yeah that was possibly that week whilst you know <laughs> while i was so exhausted yeah a few more quick memories before we get too self-indulgent what were we even doing there what was one of those things called I don't even know. I just saw it on the A-team and felt like a god driving that yeah. thing. Yeah. It's basically, for those listening, it's like a boat with a massive fan on the back. Yeah, a big fun boat. And you sit on a weird sort of school plastic chair on top yeah. of it. It's, health and safety was just like not a foot at this decade. I think I insisted on driving as well because I really wanted to channel the tiny little masculinity that I had inside <laughs> me at that point and drive, drive that wearing a vest. Or as my wearing mother would vest. say, A singlet. A singlet. This is the no- that's the night we spent in that alien town oh, yeah, and we horrible. were woken up uh, I don't know one in the morning to go and hunt aliens and we weren't very happy about it as you can see by the flaring nostrils for me that's just my natural resting face <laughs> but we were we weren't very happy about it and I think this is the last picture and I just got this I found this the other day and I'd forgotten all about this memory this is, is very this is John, John Kerry, Kerry. <laughs> we should never have been anywhere near John Kerry but we ended up at NASA watching a rocket launch and we got up at three in the morning and waited at NASA for the 11am takeoff but you have to get to NASA really early because of the security or whatever so we waited for like hours and hours we're freezing and then we're boiling and we're starving whatever then there's an announcement that one of the rocket boosters I've made that up I don't know what it was had broken and it wouldn't take off that day can you come back and do that all again tomorrow Yes. So anyway, at this point, John Kerry rocks up to do like a proper announcement. Do you remember this? Can I tell the story? And we were like, oh my God, like he's a really important guy. This is crazy. We shouldn't be this close to him. And no one seemed to be sort of going, can you please step away from John Kerry? So I went, Reg, go and ask a question, ask a question, ask a question. And Reggie went, John, what's your favourite flavour crisps? (laughs) We shouldn't have been allowed in there. 
It was outrageous. But I saw that picture and I, I cried with laughter. It was a very, very funny moment. We shouldn't have been allowed anywhere. We're idiots. We're idiots. We still are. We idiots. still are. Um, that was just a nice moment for us to look yeah. back at some of the many moments that we've had. Good times on TV and doing some lovely things together and we've had lovely moments in our friendship as well some of those pictures were not appropriate to show here today Um, but I I really am uh, as a friend intrigued as to when you felt some sort of inner shift where you knew that the sort of programming you were making as much uh, as you enjoyed all of that and as much fun and growth as we all had why and when you felt something inside shifting to move you into the, the area that you're in now? Uh, it's lots of different uh, moments, but it sort of all came to a head when um, a friend of mine pulled me to one side and said, you've got an incredible platform, use it. Now, at this point, I was, um, I was hosting The Voice, and I think I'm the first, uh, well, I was the first at that point, uh, young black guy to host a Saturday night primetime show on British television, which is insane it's when you think about ridiculous. it. <laughs> no, thank you, but that's not an achievement. It's mm. actually a damn shame. It so is. I appreciate the applause, but it's actually a damn shame, if mm. I'm completely honest with you. And uh, when I had several people who looked like my mum say to me, do something with this. Yeah. Use this. You've got more ears than you've ever had before. You've got more attention than anyone that looks like you has ever had in this country. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And um, it was Danny Cohen, um, who uh, used to run BBC One and then he ran BBC Three, who pulled me to one side and executive at the Beeb. And he told me that he really wanted me to make some factual programming. So as part of Comic Relief, I went away to Kenya and I made a film with Lenny Henry, Angela Ripper and a few other people. a wonderful bit of TV. Yeah, when we lived in a slum for seven days and um, I came back more tired than I've ever been, more broken than I've ever been, but more elevated than I've ever been in terms of my own personal growth and development. And I didn't know that TV can develop you. I didn't know that an experience you have on camera can change you forever. Mm. And um, you know me, I've always loved shoes. I've always loved sneakers. At that point, I had a house in Highbury. It's two bedroom. The first bedroom, when you walked into the house, on the left was just shoes. At that point, I had about 3,000 pairs of sneakers. It was 3, stupid. 3,000? Yeah, 3,000. I shit you not. Uh, and this is, this, is, this is a problem for me. And again, it sounds really gratuitous, but if you unpick it a little bit, this is a kid who had one pair of sneakers and would make them last two years. Yeah. So... I had really bad feet because I would have to make everything last. And so the minute you're on TV and you start to get free stuff and it's every brand that you've idolized as a kid, you take everything. So I was taking every free pair of shoes I could get and I was buying every pair of shoes that I liked because I could suddenly. There was no cap on what I could get. And, you know, working class kid from North London, I'm not thinking about Gucci, I'm thinking about Nike. And that was what I cared about. So I ended up having this room full of shoes. Anyway, I'll try and make this point as quickly as possible. Uh, I'd been living in this slum for seven days, making this documentary. I got home. First thing I saw was this disgusting room full of consumerism. And I had my first panic attack. And I didn't quite know what to do. And that night I called this company that shipped clothes from the UK to Africa. And I told them, go in, fill up your van, take whatever you want. And they just took two and a half thousand pairs of shoes. That's all they could take, which is a lot. But they took three quarter, three, uh, two thirds of what I had. And um, I realized in that moment that what I did on screen changed me forever. Mm. And I knew that I needed to do more. 
And then when Danny said to me, I want you to do more TV, I want you to do more factual TV, uh, I said to him, but I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not right for this. Uh, and I went on and had this massive sort of monologue as to why I'm not right. I said, you know, I, I've not got a degree. I never went to university. I'm not an expert in anything in particular. Why will anyone listen to me? And he said, all of the reasons you've given as to why you're not right to make factual is exactly why you should make it. Yeah. Because you are the audience. And that sort of changed something in my mind between that conversation and the conversations I was having with strangers who were telling me to do something of value suddenly made entertainment make no sense. Yeah. And I have nothing against anybody that wants to do it, but for me and for my experience and the journey that I've been on, the ears that I have now and the eyes that I have, for me to not use that in a way that can actually affect change in a positive and healthy way would be a huge waste. Well, and, and, and the programme... Yes, absolutely. Thank you. The, the programming that you're making is exceptional and I have loved but also at times find it very difficult to see you in certain situations as a friend because I know once you've come back from these trips how immersed you are in these subject matters and and not only are you immersing yourself in these other situations but then you're trying to live your life amongst it and I know that after some of these trips when you've been making these very intense shows it is difficult to make that transition back into your normal life Obviously, you had a very extreme case of that coming back to what you deemed as normal prior going on your first trip. But I'd love to know now how, how you make that happen more smoothly and, and if it still feels as, um, I guess, disjointed going from one particular moment to your regular life. Uh, now it's easier than it ever has been uh, because um, I have the process in place coming away from one of those difficult experiences to allow me to get back to who I am and to remember and retain my sense of self while there and when I get And home. how do you do that? Because I imagine that, you know, you're empathetic by nature and you want to help people and you want to unpick these stories, but how do you safeguard your own well-being amongst that? And I know there's, if there's people here that are doctors, uh, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, people that talk to uh, people every day or vulnerable people, you have to watch your own energy and yourself because you're taking on so many other stories and so much yeah. how do you protect yourself in that situation it's a process so yeah. um i have three or four things that i always do when i get home now uh first of all i see my therapist uh who is incredibly important and therapy has taught me about being boundaried and having boundaries in those um really difficult and challenging situations is incredibly important little anecdote i'll try and make it as quick as possible yeah, go for you, um, time. and that is that um when I first started making documentaries, I thought that I needed to retain a relationship with everybody that I met for me to be my authentic self. So in Kenya, for instance, I took everybody's phone number and took everybody's email. I made a series on Tourette's. I took everybody's email and everybody's phone number. And then you get to a point where that's all you do, uh, it, making documentaries. And you're meeting 50 people a year, all who have incredible stories, all who need or would love you to be a part of their support system. And... It's just not realistic. It's just not possible. So when I learned about boundaries, I learned to not bring home with me some of the things that I engaged in while I was away. Being around my sister's children, and I can't help but smile whenever I think about it, and one of my sisters has five kids, the other one has three, they just dilute anything. They're like water to the cordial. They are incredible in reminding you about perspective. Because when you're around a three-year-old, 
when you're around a newborn baby who just wants to be looked after and loved, you kind of remember that your problems don't really matter. Outside of that, having an incredible friendship circle, you know, being able to talk to people about some of the things that I'm dealing with that I'd feel nervous talking to others about for fear of judgment. Um, between those three things and those three pockets of people, um, I, I, yeah, there, there isn't much you could throw at me that I wouldn't be able to handle now. Um, it's very interesting because, uh, like a lot of the gentlemen that we've had on this stage, like Russell and Billy Munger, you know, we know that men are starting to open up more and feel able to talk about their feelings and emotions and to be vulnerable. But still, you know, I've been walking around the festival for two days. There's a lot more women than men. And I salute every man that's come along either with their partner or with a friend or on their own, because I've met a couple that have. Um, and I'm massively grateful, and I hope that you all tell all your mates to come next year, because it's still seen as a female area, that what the well-being world, or looking after yourself. And I'm massively appreciative that you are willing to keep talking and to feel uh, that you can help guide other people to do the same, hopefully. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's, there's still a disparity in that. Without sense. a doubt, but I do think it's changing, though. Yeah. To be fair to my brothers in arms in the audience yes. and in the tent... It is changing. I think that we as, uh, as men are shifting in the main. And this is no disrespect to any man of a certain age, but I do think it's generational. I think for uh, men of my age and my generation and lower down, we're more cognizant of how, uh, how we think and the stories we tell ourselves. And I'm incredibly fortunate because my friends are emotional beings. The people, again, because of the tools I was given, funnily enough, by a woman, by my mother have taught me the importance of emotional awareness, of, uh, of gratitude, of being thoughtful, uh, of being self-aware. Um, these are all things that were sort of instilled in me in quite a young age, and the, the men, male friends that I have that I'm attracted to are the same way. So, you know, when I sit and talk on, on, on my podcast with my group of mates, we will laugh and joke and banter in the ways that you'd expect men to, but then the conversation will become something quite real and authentic, because we all have things that we're dealing with and we're not scared to ask for help or advice. And I'm really spoilt because I'm surrounded by that. But I do think it's a generational shift. Our fathers weren't able to speak in the way that we are, didn't understand the importance of self-awareness or wellness, mm. um, and also weren't willing to ask for help. Scared to ask for help. Absolutely. My, um, for help. I remember when I told my mum that I was in therapy, she nearly started crying because generationally, culturally, uh, she thought she'd failed. Mm. And I had to explain to her, mum, you've actually succeeded because you've raised a man that is willing enough to learn how to be a better version of yes. himself. And it came from her. And when I explained that, she suddenly sort of puffed up a yeah. little bit and the peacock feathers came out and went, yeah, she was like, yes, I am brilliant. <laughs> maybe I am amazing. Yes, yeah, maybe that is, that is me. Oh, but yeah, um, uh, completely, it, it came from her and I think asking for help shows a sign of, will show signs of success and growth rather than the opposite, which is the way I was raised and what I was taught to believe from that previous generation. Oh, it, it, that is such an important thing, I think, for all of us to remember that asking for help is never, ever a bad thing. I have asked so many of my friends for help and professionals for help, and it is, it's important, it's important things to remember. Um, please give it up for my dear friend, Reggie Yates. 
Oh, Reggie, I bloody love you. Thanks for coming down to Chiswick House and sharing such personal stories with hundreds of people on that gorgeous August weekend. It was so special. And next week, we'll be at Tatton Park in Manchester for our second weekend of live podcasts, classes, workshops and talks, including Russell Brand, Dame Kelly Holmes, Bella Mackey and so many more. That's the 7th and 8th of September, Tatton Park. For tickets and info, head to happyplacefestival.com. Next week on the podcast, oh, I love this one so much. We meet Megan Jane Crabb. Inescapably, being an influencer is so much about appearance. It is so, so easy to get dragged into trying to curate the perfect feed and the perfect image. And even I get so, so wrapped up in it sometimes. I can't even lie and say the perfect pictures don't perform better because they do. Megan, like, seriously changed my mind on a lot of things. It's a really, I mean, it's an important episode personally for me, but I just think you're really going to love it. Until then, thank you to Reggie, to our wonderful audience at the Happy Place Festival London, to the producers Thomas Griffin and Matt Hill from Rethink Audio, and to you, lovely lot for listening. Thank you, and I'll see you in Manchester. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.